Evening Hope Reformed Baptist Church. Happy Reformation Day. Good, very good. That is the right response. I'm sure that's what all the, uh, all the reformers did every Sunday as well. Give a big, big loud woo. Uh, it was 505 years ago and we're remembering today as part of that... Uh, we're reclaiming Halloween, where we're taking it back and making it Reformation weekend. And uh, I believe in the, in, in, in the Lord's timing, we will celebrate Reformation holidays rather than Halloween, and everybody will dress up like John Calvin and Martin Luther rather than, than demons and popes and other things like that, and, and horror nuns. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's my prayer, at least. I hope that you're, you're hoping and praying that God Christianizes our society, and after that happens, uh, and we can all hope. <clears throat> but... But uh, we, we, I reminded the, 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 the girl ghost plant this afternoon that we are, we're very much in the heritage of the, of the uh, Reformation and we thank God for it because we're, we're commanded in Scripture to give thanks and to recount the mighty works of God from the past. And so we are, we're actually negligent in our duty when we don't recall church history. Church history is not merely a, uh, a, 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 a coincidence, but it is something that we ought to know so that we can give God glory for all of his marvelous works. And one of those things that we give him glory for was the passion and the zeal and the indefatigable uh, 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 toil that those men and women put in to be able to know the scriptures, have the scriptures in the language of the people. We thank them for that. If you've got an English Bible, that was the work of the reformers and pre-reformers. We thank God that we, uh, uh, for all of the benefits that have come through that and that we can, we can gather today not under the the edict of the Pope, not through the mediation of priests, but through the mediation of Jesus Christ, the only priest, the high priest, who makes us acceptable before God. Amen? We thank, we thank God for that. And it was, it was a, a zeal for the truth. It was a, a, a love for, for human souls. It was, a, it was a love for the glory of God that burned in, in Martin Luther, for example, on that day in 1517, October 31st, so 500 and Five years tomorrow when he, he pinned up his, his uh, 95 objections to the errors of the, local, of the, the Roman Universal Church uh, uh, at the time. And he was professor of Bible at the University of Wittenberg in Germany. And he, uh, uh, and he posted those up so that there might be, as some of you are aware and some of you are not aware, he put them up not, not to start this thing called the Reformation, definitely not to bring down the Catholic Church, but just to, to instigate some, some conversation and some debate about those things that were no doubt in error. But it, we should not fool ourselves in thinking that in 1517, uh, Martin Luther had a, had a fully clarified, crystallized view of the doctrine of justification by faith alone and scripture alone and things like that. We'll, we'll look a little bit in, in, into his journey as we, uh, we go into Colossians 1 tonight, but, but he, he had that conviction that some things are worth fighting for, some things are worth living for and dying for. And the doctrine of salvation, as the scripture puts it forward, is one of those things that every Christian should have burning in our heart, a willingness, if not, if not the, the, the ability, because we're not all called to, to, the, to the exact same situation where we ought to die for it, but we have that heart, the willingness that we would consider an honor to die for the truth of the word of God surrounding justification by faith alone, in Christ alone, by God's grace alone, according to scripture alone, to the glory of God alone, amen? And as we consider those doctrines as being so central to who we are here at Hope Church, no doubt, to every true Christian, it ought to be that those things, whether they can define it or not, those things are at the heart of all true Christianity. We, we realize that it, the, the, as, 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 as that is part of what we're about, so it was with Paul. He knew the same, that, that he lived and died for certain truths, that he was willing to be thrown in prison, shipped halfway across the known world, for certain truths. And those truths were not his political opinion, were not his personal persuasions, but those things delivered him from a revelation of Jesus Christ that set him apart as an apostle, and that was the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's that which was which was covered and 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 darkened and put away by the Catholic Church, and it was that which was uncovered, which was illumined, which was projected and and propelled again in the Protestant Reformation. And what we have in the in the situation of Paul writing to the Colossians is that risk is at play. That as he's writing to the Colossians as Epaphras, their pastor, has come and visited Paul in house arrest. He's warned them. Sorry, he's he's 
He's telling Paul, he's, he's alerting Paul to the risks that are going on in Colossae, that, that while Epaphras is doing what he can, there seems to be some false teachers around who have just a way of putting things. They just have a way of, you know what, it's a part of their niceness. They don't yell like you, Paul. They don't yell like me. They're so nice. They're so kind. They're so slimy. But they, they get into people's households and they're telling them that, that Jesus is good, but there's more. That faith is good, but there's more. That, that, that salvation in Christ is good good, but there's more to experience. There was just more being added to. And so Epaphras is telling Paul, you need to swing in with your apostolic right hook here and demand obedience to the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And so he has written last week, if you remember back, look at Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 through 19. Paul, Paul made in that as he described Jesus, Jesus as true God. Jesus as the creator of all things, the sustainer of all things, and the redeemer, he was connecting so closely the person of Jesus, his nature, to his work, to what he accomplished. The fact that redemption is in the hands of him who holds every cell and every atom and every galaxy in existence within the palm of his hand, the fact that that is who holds our redemption, means that our redemption needs no help, our redemption needs no assistance, our redemption is not insufficient, it is gloriously, infinitely secure and sufficient because of whose hand it is in. He made the connection between the work, the glory, the divinity, the deity, the godness, the godness of Jesus and connected that to the redemption that Jesus brings. And today he's, he goes, in our verses, verse 21 through 23, he goes from, from big scope, zoomed out gospel to the zoomed in gospel. He goes from the, the reconciliation of all things in heaven and on earth, the peace that God brings, the, the glorious kingdom that Jesus is establishing through his blood of the cross by reconciling the whole world to himself, verse 20 is going to tell us, on the back of verse 19, which said, in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And then he says, therefore through his blood, through the blood of him in whom God dwelt fully, of course, his blood is able to do something as glorious and cosmic and powerful as reconciling the entire universe to himself. What good news. He's going to go from that large scale, that, that sort of fulfillment, and he's going to go a little bit into this next week as well, that this is the culmination of all God's purposes. He's going to go from this Old Testament prophetic fulfillment, right? The, the Old Testament prophetic prophetic promise and hope of the future was that God himself would come down, not just another king, not just another prophet. God himself would come to his holy temple. God himself would be king and he would bring peace on earth. Do you remember the angels at Christmas announced that at the birth of the Messiah? Peace on earth. That, 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 that Isaiah's prophecy said that he who would be born of the virgin would be the prince of Peace. That, that under his government uh, and in his rule, it says, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Jesus came to bring peace on earth through the peace that we have in the cross between us and God. That is first, vertical reconciliation and peace, that God is no longer our enemy. And then flowing from that, righteousness and peace throughout the world. As Jesus, in verse 20, look, at, look there, through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. That, grace, that great peace that was promised is now purchased by Jesus and applied through the Holy Spirit all throughout church history. Tonight, though, we're asking the question, in light of the fact that Jesus is God, in light of the fact that God died on the cross to purchase the whole universe back to God, in light of that, does that reconciliation include sinners? Does that reconciliation include humans? Or is this kind of a Genesis 6 deal again? God's going to send his flood. God's going to send a flood of fire this time. Second Peter tells us God's going to wrap up human history, destroy the old world, recreate it in perfection, but this time without the problem, sinners. Without the problem, 
humans. And it's just going to be the greeny, the, you know, the, 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 the peace emblem wearing's dream. It's going, to be hum- it's going to be the universe without humans. Is that what God's going to do? Is that how God is going to reconcile all things back to himself? The answer, of course, is no. God is going, and this is, this is the baffling part. God is going in his cosmic reconciliation to include the reconciliation of sinners. Who you might think, yeah, well, of course, if he's going to reconcile anything, he's going to reconcile humans, right? But that would probably be coming from an assumption that the rest of the world is just creation. We're made in his image. You know, if he loves anything, he loves us. He made us as the crowning perfection over his world. Surely if he redeemed one thing, he'd redeem us. But that would to be get... That would be to get things upside down. It is, in fact, because we were made in his image that our fall and our curse was all the more severe. Everything else fell in merit of the fact that it was related to God through us. Head, Adam was. Head over all creation. The the fact is that because we were so much more pure, so much more glorious, we bore the image of God. Therefore, our sin, our fall, was all the more adulterous against him. I actually think that if God was to reconcile, to, to not reconcile anything on account of it being harder to reconcile, it would be humans. We took not merely God's recreation, not merely God's attempt or God's whim to do it again, make another... That's not all that it took for God. What it took for God was the blood of his son to reconcile sinners. But it happened. Now in verse 20, one little thought you might have, and we're going to read it in just a moment, but one thought we might have is, does this suggest universalism? Universalism, isn't that that age-old heresy that teaches that every human being and demon eventually will be so won and wooed and, and, and swayed by the love of God that eventually every human soul will find itself in heaven. That hell is either temporary or like a purgatory or it doesn't exist, everybody goes to heaven when we die. This is one of those key verses that those heretics go to and say, see, God through Christ is reconciling to himself all things, whether in heaven or on earth. That's everything, that's everyone. Now, of course, we understand that without context, you might think that. Except the fact that in verse 23, in applying that that reconciliation to individuals, he says that it only applies to you, verse 23, if indeed you continue in the faith. The leaves, the tree, the lion, the frog, the mountain, the Grand Canyon do not have to bend their knee in repentance to God to be reconciled. But those things born in the image of God, those beings who were made with a, with a moral agency against, whose, who, against who they, they are sinning intentionally to God, not merely by, by being under a passive curse, to us, to humans, to you, every one of us, you will not passively, you will not automatically be passed into God's good grace of reconciliation. But only those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ will be saved and will partake in this reconciliation. The great question tonight is, how does that happen and how do we partake of it? So look at verse 21. The question tonight is, how are we reconciled to God, us sinners? Exactly how does that take place and how do we receive that reconciliation? Verse 21, Paul says, And you who once were alienated alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds... He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless, above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. May God bless the reading of his own word in our midst this evening. Tonight we see... <clears throat> the alienation that we receive, the justification, sorry, the reconciliation we receive and justification. So look first at the alienation that we all have by merit of our birth. In verse 21, you were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. When he sought to introduce Christ back in verse 15, he says that he's the image of the invisible God. 
And he's basically said in verse 19, and you are the image of the invisible devil. You are the embodiment of all that God hates. Sinfulness, evil, breaking of God's law, hostility to holiness. That's what we represent. He says here that we are alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. This removes any false hope that there's any individual out there, especially an Australian individual, Paul was writing this with Aussies in mind, that we would go, I know there's such a thing as bad people, there's Hitler, there's Mussolini, there's the person that in, invented buttercream, you know, whatever, there's those people, but just not us, not me, not one of them. So good that people find religion and those sinners and criminals and prostitutes, they find Jesus, but I'm okay with God. The reality is a universal negative has been proclaimed over every human that has ever been conceived, justly condemned. We are alienated from God. That word is, could otherwise be translated as cut off. We are outside of the blessings of God. We are put away from him. We are, we are outside of, what, of, of the blessings of God. Excluded, that word alienated means. And the answer to why is in the next phrase. Why are we alienated? Why are we cut off and excluded? Because we are hostile in mind. 32 times this Greek word for hostile is used in the New Testament, and almost every time it is in fact translated as enmity or an enemy. In the adjective, it is here hostile, some kind of active verb. We are hostile to God. It could rather be translated, we are enemies against God in our mind. The situation that you and I find ourselves in, and if, if you're not a Christian, if you've not been born again, then the situation you find yourself into God is not a mere passive situation that you stumbled upon. When I was 19, I was driving home after dropping my beautiful girlfriend off. She later became my wife, just so you know, I'm not talking about a different person. My beautiful then girlfriend, now wife Joy, off home, and I took the, the half-hour drive. Uh, it was about 11 p.m. at night. Uh, it, was a, it was a uni night. I had worked that day, then taken her on a big date at Mount Cutha. We had pizza. There's a box of Italian pizza sitting on my back uh, uh, seat, because again, I was in uni and couldn't waste food, waste not, want not. And so here I was driving home, and, and as I'm driving, I woke up, which is not a good thing to do while you're driving. Tremendous to be awake. Bad idea to wake up while driving, though it is second best to being awake. So good news, I woke up, but I woke up being thrown around my cabin, hitting the, the roof of my car with my head. Uh, apparently, there's not much uh, vertical restraint in a seatbelt in a 2001 Toyota Corolla. I hit my head on my window and on my steering wheel, and my, my, my car bounced off a gum tree and ground to a halt after going over a speed sign, after going down a large ditch off the road uh, because I'd fallen asleep and veered. I had gone through a fence and gone onto private property. Worse yet, it was federal private property. It was the Green Bank military base. Here I was, parked, smoking car. Uh, I'm sure I made loud noises as I was waking up while being tossed about. I got out of my car, still in somewhat of a daze with quite a headache. I got back in my car, which hardly had a front anymore, and I put it into reverse and tried to take off because I was still quite dazed. And about five meters of scraping my engine on the dirt, I realized I'm not making it far. I got out. The first person to drive past was a volunteer fireman. Good news. Came in, offered to help. Second person that drove past was a random police officer driving past and decided to pay me a visit. Not quite as lucky. And the third person to come through was not merely driving past, but actually came because his alarms had gone off. He was the military security. And he drove in in his large truck and, and screeched to a halt and marched on over. But seeing the situation, recognized quickly that I was in an accidental situation. I had not, in fact, waged war against the Australian military, starting with the Green Bank military base right near suburbia. That was not what I was doing. He quickly, and I'm thankful, recognized it. He helped me out. He, he pushed me across the road and whatnot. Some people, too many people, 
almost all people assume that their situation before God is a little bit like that. The preacher's going to tell you you're in a bad way. The judgy guys are going to tell you that, that it's going to be bad news when God gets here. But when he meets me, he will realize, I didn't mean to pull in here. I didn't mean to be such a horrible sinner. I didn't mean to break the fence down and trespass and commit a federal crime. I didn't mean to do any of that. And the one thing I do take responsibility for is falling asleep. Also shouldn't have done that, of course. But when he finds me, he'll realize this is all a big accident. It's all quite passive. This was not intentional. That's how people think our relationship with God is like. And Judgment Day will be a big apology, and he'll say, ah, don't worry about it. How can I help? We are not in a passive, accidental relationship of hostility with God. He's not an angry security member pumped up on his own pride because he couldn't make it into the police force and runs at you with his taser, not a real gun, and, and makes a big deal about nothing. God is the holy, omnipotent, triune God of the universe, and his infinite standard is not merely accidentally broken, though it is. He does not find us as, as apologetic, unintentional, passive breakers of his law. The Bible here tells us we are hostile to God. We are enemies against God. We despise him, and it is true that we wage war against him in every breathing moment of our existence outside of Christ. We are hostile in mind towards God. The fact that the Bible tells us is that we hate God by nature. How many people would hear that and just say, not me, like, far out. I'm, I, I'm not religious, okay. I'd rather my, my 4X rather than, rather than a, 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 a Sunday service. Okay, true, but I don't hate God. But friends, the Bible doesn't ask us if we hate God. The Bible tells us whether you realize it or not, you hate God. This is what the Bible is. It's the light into our dark ignorance. Whenever we feel like saying, that's probably a bit much, hear God telling you, that's why I wrote it down, because you wouldn't have thought this without me telling you. And also, every time you disagree with the Bible, that you're not hostile in mind, you're being hostile in mind to God. The proof that we're hostile in mind against God, we're enemies of God and we hate God, is that we hate his law. And now again, our little inner lawyer would jump up and say, I don't hate God's law, but the proof that we hate God's law is that we are breaking the law every single day. We are hostile. We hate God. The proof of that is that we hate his law. The proof that we hate his law is that we are doing evil deeds. That's at the end of verse 21. I remember in high school, there was a guy who was quite an artist, and he had, he had uh, graffitied a picture of the, of the principal, and it was well done. As far as disrespectful, sinful graffiti goes, it was pretty well done. It was hilarious. As a high schooler, I appreciated it, though it got him in some trouble. Him and his mate had drawn these pictures day by day and had sort of made it worse and had started punching holes in them, and, and, and it was confiscated by the teacher. And, of course, the little bulletin pamphlet was shown to the principal, and he came in, and he chatted to these two young guys. Now, now they didn't know that the principal had seen the picture, and so their story was that my pen had slipped... I was drawing on another piece of paper and yours was underneath it. And the other guy was, yeah, my, my scissors, like I was, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a lousy cutter, you know, and there we go. Now, now in that sort of situation, the principal could say, I, if there was a stroke here or there or a cut here or there, I'd believe you. Okay, it was accidental. You don't, you don't hate me. It wasn't hostility to me. It was, it was just how things happened to go. But I found this intricately drawn, detailed graffiti that was, has been done over day by day by day, and, and intricate intentional scissor holes right in my eyeballs and in other places on the principal's body. And so it was obvious that since this had taken place intentionally day by day by day, it obviously was personal. Now, we might want to say, I don't hate God's law. I don't despise God's I just sin every now and then. But friends, it would, it's not believable to God. It's not believable at all that when we say, I don't hate God's law, and then he finds on our record every single day and every hour of every day, we return to that law of God and break it in every way possible. It's not at all believable that we are not, in fact, hostile against God's law. We hate him. We hate his law. That is why we do evil deeds. It even goes deeper than just, just meaning. As we... As we sum up your life before Christ, or if you're outside of Jesus now, not a believer, this, this summarizes your life. It's not enough to think that Paul is saying, you do some evil deeds 
among some of your neutral deeds and your other good deeds. He's not saying that. He's saying that the only thing you have ever done is evil deeds. Because everything you do, including waking up in the morning, going to bed at night, making yourself breakfast, doing a good act of service to your neighbor, everything that you've ever done, including taking God's breath of oxygen in, everything was done under the banner of I hate God, I refuse to repent, I refuse to give thanks to God. The reality is that there has never been a human being outside of Christ that has ever done a good deed. Until you are brought by Christ's cross into a reconciled relationship with God, every deed you do is evil and held against you so that Paul in Romans 2 says, you are piling up, you are storing up, you are piling on top of pile the wrath of God to be poured out onto you on the day of judgment when his righteous wrath is revealed. Romans 2 verse 5. Every act is an act of hostility to God as long as you are outside and and as far as we were outside of Jesus Christ. R.C. Sproul used to say that we are, as far as sinfulness goes and our status before God, we are criminals against God's law. We are enemies against his person. And we are debtors to his morality. We, We owed him a moral debt of perfection We have failed to pay it with the life that he gave. We are therefore indebted to his infinite moral standards. So not only only are we alienated, hostile, doing evil deeds because we're breaking the law, there's not even an option to go back to the law and fix anything up. You're not even being told, as as Paul condemns us and says, you break the law every day, you are hostile to God and breaking his law and doing evil deeds, and we would say, okay, okay, well, show me the law, point me to the door, I'll go through, I'll start fixing myself up, I'll do some good deeds, I will reclaim that which was lost, Romans 3 verse 20 says, by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through knowledge of the law, all that comes is knowledge of sin. The only thing that happens in a Christian that is not reconciled, so a person that is not reconciled to God, a person that is still outside of Christ, the only thing that happens when you pick up the law is a big magnifying glass goes into your soul and exposes your sinfulness. All that it does is, is clarify the holiness of God and the distinction between us and stir in us further hatred of what we see in him. That's all the law is able to do. The law was not given that man might be justified. The law was given so that man might see his failure and inability to be justified by works. So this is the bad news. The alienation and hostility and evil that we have before God is hopeless. You are without hope. You are unable to save yourself. There is no good news for you. Until God breaches the chasm and sends his own son. You who were those things, look at verse 22 as we move to the consideration of reconciliation. He has now reconciled. Those are three very good words starting with one main good word. He. He has now reconciled. He did the reconciliation. He did not wait for you to be unalienated. He did not wait for us to muster up a a cessation of evil. He did not wait for us to no longer be hostile in mind, but while we were dead in our sins, while we were weak, yet at the right time, Christ died for us. He did what the law, weakened by our flesh, was unable to do. In, In becoming into human flesh, in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, God was able to condemn sin in the flesh, but not our flesh. He has reconciled. He has now reconciled. While we were dead, he has acted to bring us to life. Ephesians 2 verse 13 says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once alienated and far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. His blood, which verse 20 told us is reconciling the whole world, is bringing back to himself also sinners who have faith in Jesus Christ. 
And how did that work? How in the world was this? I mean, the news couldn't have been worse in verse 21. The alienation couldn't have been more absolute. The evil could not, been more, could not have been more all-pervasive. So what is it that happened that God did in order to reconcile us back to him? Look, it says, he has now reconciled us in his body of flesh by his death. There was a necessary component to the atonement. God was, was not free in this sense. He, he was not free to simply deliberate between Father, Son, and Spirit, play the cards out, and absolve that whole sinfulness thing. That would be against, and that would be to be faithless to his own nature, which is to explode in wrathful hatred against sin. He was not free to simply delegate this to the angels so that they might deliberate and debate about how sin can be dealt with. God was not free, and nor could he have, have simply let this play out in a great angel versus demon war. This was unsolvable by Jesus coming and simply fighting and besting and beating the devil. That would not have been enough. That would have done nothing for us. The gospel that need, needed to be, to be preached, the, the salvation, the atonement that needed to be given, needed to be God in flesh. It required the incarnation of God himself. The reconciliation of alienated sinners required the entry of the Son of God, the creator and sustainer, into the body of human flesh. This transaction could only be undertaken by God. But this transaction had to be undertaken as a true representative of man. John Flavel, a Puritan, 1691, he wrote this down. He wrote a, an imaginary but very biblical conversation that we might imagine between the Father and the Son before Jesus came to die for our sins. The Father, Flavel says, <clears throat> my son... Here is a company of poor, miserable souls that have utterly, utterly undone themselves and now lie open to my justice. Justice demands satisfaction for them or will satisfy itself in the eternal ruin of them. What shall be done for these souls? The son replies, O oh, my father, such is my love to and pity for them that rather than that they shall perish eternally, I will be responsible for them as their guarantee. Bring all your bills, that I may see what they owe you. Bring all of them in, Lord Father, that there may be no after-reckonings with them, and at my hand you will require it. I would rather choose to suffer your wrath than that they suffer it. Upon me, my Father, upon me put all their debt. The Father says, but my son." If you undertake for them, you must pay the last penny. Expect no discounts. If I spare them, I cannot spare you. The son says, I am willing, Father. Let it be so. Charge it all to me. I am able to pay their debt. And though it will undo me, though it will impoverish all of my riches and empty all my accounts, yet I am content to undertake it. This is what was needed. The Son of God to willingly come so that we do not simply have something playing out in the spiritual realm as the Gnostics, as the Colossian heretics wanted it to play out, as the liberal theologians who despise penal substitutionary atonement would have it play out. As long as Jesus beats the kingdom of Satan, we can all go free. God would not have it. If he will be merciful to us, he will not be merciful to a representative. If he will give grace to us, he would give no grace to a substitute. But learn that, know that true. One must absorb the full and glorious wrath of God or there would be no salvation for a single soul. Jesus had to come. It was necessary that if God were to save sinners, he would also pour out his justice upon his son for sin. And so the gospel that we preached is forged in the blood of the incarnate God. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. It was the Lord's will to crush him. He has put Jesus to grief. Jesus' soul made an offering for guilt. 
He bore our iniquities. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. He himself bore our sins in his body of flesh on the tree in his death. He redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And he did what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. What is the outcome of this glorious, glorious transaction whereby the son came into a body of flesh and thereby died? What happens because of that? What happens next? We, as verse 22 goes on, we are presented to God, holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Holy and blameless and above reproach before. We can only be counted holy and blameless and above reproach before him because Jesus was counted as unholy, blamed, and reproached. That means accused before him. Only because he bore the curse can we receive the blessing. It's, it's the depth of human delusion to think that we, in our own standing, could be or are holy and blameless and without accusation before the Father. That is the height of human deception. Martin Luther used to say that there's, of all the heresies that have ever plagued the mind of man, none so stupid has there been but this, that man might make himself right before a holy God. There is no, no more stupefying. There is no more foolish mindset than that. If it took the glory of God in flesh to reconcile us, what, what a folly and an insult would it be for us to think it even possible for us to do ourselves. If it were possible, God would have answered Jesus' prayer that he did not need to go to the cross, but it was required. Martin Luther, he lived in this way, as, as all consistent Catholics do. He lived in the prison of mind that near drove him insane because he was trying to make himself righteous before God. It'll drive you insane. Spiritually foolish, intellectually insane. He said, he said back when I was a monk, I wearied myself greatly for almost 15 years with the daily sacrifices. I, honestly, I earnestly thought to acquire righteousness by my works. I tortured myself with prayer, fasting, vigils, and freezing, which is a, a practice they used to do, sleep alone on the stone-cold floor with no bedding or any blankets in order to pay for your sins. The frost alone might have killed me, Luther said. This is what mankind tries to do so hopelessly, is to make themselves right before God, but it can never be done. Spurgeon said it rightly that he said, he who would try to earn a right standing before God by his own good works will have better luck climbing to the moon on a rope of sand. Say it better than that, I dare you. Climbing to the moon on a rope of sand. You have better chances at that, at accumulating a righteousness before God so that he looks on us and says, you've met my standards. It's more than an impossibility. God requires of us a perfect human righteousness. Here's how you need to be right before God. You need to bring, provide for God out of your own life and soul a perfect human righteousness whereby you have loved God and neighbor with all of your mind, soul, strength, and heart every minute of every day. That's what you need to provide. Failing that, as I'm sure we all admit we will, what we could bring is somebody else's perfect righteousness under the law whereby they have lived every minute of every day obeying and loving God and their neighbor with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and bringing a sacrifice of infinite value for our sin and failure to do so. So that that person can give us their righteousness and we can go without judgment. They give us their righteousness, they take our sin. Failing that, what you need to do is present yourself before God on judgment day. Don't worry, he'll make sure you make that appointment and give to him your soul to die and be tormented in hell forever until every last penny of his infinite justice is paid throughout all eternity. They're your options. Self-perfection, the perfection and atonement of another, or eternal hell. Friends, the good news is that Jesus Christ came to do just exactly that. And being God in flesh, he could not just atone for one more sinner. 
Not just one other person, as the law would say, life for life. One man can die for one man, one woman for one woman. But here, the infinite value of God in flesh dying for innumerable souls. That is the good news. Luther, Luther called this the righteousness that is extra nos, outside of us. The righteousness which God receives for us on our behalf is not a righteousness that comes from us by our works. The righteousness which God looks at and says, this sinner is now righteous before the law. There is zero condemnation according to the law to them. They are in right standing. They meet my standards. The righteousness which God looks at to say those things is an alien righteousness. It's somebody else's. It's something that is not lived by you, but given to you, accredited to you by the glorious truth of imputation, whereby God accounts you as having Christ's righteousness. This, this is what Jesus Christ did in his body of flesh by his death. He presented us holy and blameless and above reproach before the Father. How is it then for each individual as as each of us, I, I want this to be as personal as humanly possible. I call on, on the help of the Holy Spirit to make it more than humanly possible, but deeply personal down to every soul. What, what is your status before God? Were tonight to be the last night that you go to bed, you rest your head, and you awake to see the holy God holding you in his judgment that is promised to every single one of us, since it is appointed for man to die once and then face judgment. Were you to walk into the judgment hall of the divine Jehovah, and he were to ask of you to provide to him the accounting of a perfect human righteousness and a perfect atonement of sacrifice for your sins, what would you say? Would you be confident, not just to know that you heard that Jesus provided those things, but before you meet the judge, have you settled out of court? Have you already received that from Jesus, making death not a fearful death? Have you the confidence that you know more than you know anything, that Jesus is yours and you are Jesus? Do you know that he is yours by faith? Because that is precisely and that is only how it is applied to us. Jesus has died. He has reconciled those who were once Enemies and, and evil and hostile. He has reconciled those and made them blameless before God. If what? What is the personal condition of the new covenant? What has to be true of you in order to receive the good news and the blessings of the righteousness and the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ? Here's how the Colossian heresy would answer it. Well, it's yours, all of it. The divine righteousness, the, the glorious blessings, it's yours if you worship Jesus with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and the other gods beside him. It's yours if you trust in him by faith and you are careful and diligent to obey all of the Jewish laws and traditions and festivals and circumcision. It's yours, kind of free, but it's yours. They would say it's yours if by faith plus the entering and submission of your mind to the trances and the visions and the spiritual experiences, then you'll be in. You'll, you'll have everything God has to offer. No. How would the Catholics answer it? Well, what was their answer that made the Reformation so vitally necessary? It was that it is yours by faith and a smattering of good works. Faith and penance according to the church's teaching, faith and your, your tithing and your paying of penance, and, and faith plus love, which shows itself through good works, faith plus legal obedience. How would the modern evangelical answer it wrongly? They would say faith and love. You have to love God. No, love is fulfilled in the law. You can't love God enough. That's why he had to die. It's faith plus Plus prayer, the, the prayer, the magic prayer of, of, of salvation that your pastor signs a card for you, right? No. It's faith plus, plus a life of obedience. It's a faith plus faithfulness, which is another word for obedience. It's faith plus church attendance. It's faith plus, plus an evident outward repentance that everyone can see before your baptism. It's faith plus Plus, plus evangelizing. It's faith plus being able to define the doctrine of justification by faith alone. No, it's faith and faith alone. It's faith 
and faith alone that brings you into a just and righteous position before God. And it is the righteousness of God and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ on the line if we deny that. Do you see what an insult it is to Jesus' sufficiency if the Father demands of us anything other than faith? If he demands something more than faith, and what he's saying is, Jesus did a lot, but not everything. There's a few more lines to dot. There's a, there's a few more things to color in. There's a few more laws to obey, and that's on you. It would be, it would be an insult to Jesus. It would, it would say exactly what the Colossian heretics are saying, to say that God requires of you faith plus anything. The, the doctrine of Christ's infinite sufficiency in his nature and his atonement is so intricately connected to the doctrine of justification by faith alone. It's because the, just, the salvation is fully finished. It's because of who died that what is required of us is literally nothing. Only the act of un- unbelief. That's what faith is. Do you ever get a little bit confused I don't have to do anything, but I have to have faith. Isn't that a doing things? No, no. Faith is just stopping not believing. Stop, as you hear the gospel, as you hear the good news, as you hear Jesus on the cross, just stop not believing it. Believe it. Believe the promise of God. Believe the truthfulness of God. That's faith. Faith is an undoing doing. It is an unacting act. It is to receive empty-handed Jesus Christ. And Paul when he writes about this stuff, he, he repeats phrases to just drive it home. Listen to Galatians chapter 2, verse 16, and see if you can see how many times Paul just repeats a phrase. Galatians 2, 16. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ Jesus, and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Hear the cycles of repetition. Does it get through? No works are required because every work has been done by Jesus. Faith alone is necessary. That's why Paul says here in verse 23, those people are reconciled if you continue in the faith. If you don't reject Christianity, If you keep on having faith in Jesus Christ, stable and steadfast. And again, maybe we get confused and go, well, that sounds like it's an active work, like your life of obedience keeps you in the covenant. And we say, no, because what does he summarize it all as next? Not shifting from the hope of the gospel you've heard. As long as you still believe the gospel, you hold fast to the hope that is in it, then you are having faith. And it is faith alone that keeps you in that status of reconciliation with God. Luther, as he, as he recaps his, his born-again moment, years after the fact, he remembers back when he was lecturing on the book of Romans, and he tells us about Romans 1 verse 17, when Paul quotes the prophet Habakkuk, where he says, the righteous shall live by faith, and he says, the righteousness of God, Paul says, the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. And he says, that became a stumbling block to me. Because I was taught to believe by the Latin priests and scholars that what the righteousness of God meant was the fact that God punishes sinners. That's the righteousness of God in Romans 1. Now, to sinners who are not self-deluded, that is infinitely bad news. Luther said, he recounts it and says, I did not love the righteousness of God. I hated the righteous God. Because the righteousness of God was simply the news that I was condemned because I'm not a righteous person. He says, I hated the righteousness of God who punishes sinners. Secretly, blasphemously, murmuringly, I was angry with God. Until finally, by the mercy of God, as I meditated day and night, I paid attention to the context of the words. In it, the righteousness of God is revealed, Paul says, as it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. Then, Martin says, Then I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous person lives by a gift of God through faith. The righteousness then, here is the meaning, the righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel in that the passive righteousness, 
It is the passive righteousness with which the merciful God justifies us by faith as it is written. Here I felt altogether born again and like I had entered through the paradise itself with through open gates. He says to realize that the righteousness of God that is given in the gospel is not simply the righteousness by which God himself is righteous. The righteousness given in the gospel is the earned righteousness of God in Jesus, given as a gift to those who have faith. That's the grounds of our justification. Luther loved that truth, lived that truth, and died for that truth, as as Paul is calling us to do. Do not abandon the hope that you've received in the gospel by believing you need to add works. Don't abandon the hope of the gospel by believing there's a spiritual experience that will bring you into the presence and the righteousness of God. Believe in Jesus Christ alone. Embrace that truth. Never reject that truth. Contend for that truth and proclaim that truth to lost souls. If you are hearing this for the first time and are outside of Jesus, what you need more than anything is the righteousness of Jesus shifted into your account. And that happens by no other way than you resting and trusting on the grace and love of Jesus Christ for you. Let's pray. God, would you exalt your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in our lives? Would you exalt him in our midst this evening? Would you exalt him in the life of this church? Would you exalt him in our individual lives as we live that we might give a a testimony worthy of the calling we've received? Would you exalt him in church history as his gospel goes far and wide and wins a harvest as verse 23 tells us tonight. It's being proclaimed in all creation under heaven. Would that continue to be true, Lord God? Would souls tonight in our midst for the first time place their faith in Jesus who have now recognized how guilty they are without him, how hopeless they are without him, how helpless they are without him? Father God, would you give to us the confidence, those who know you, would you give us the confidence to know, know, and know that we know that we are righteous in Jesus Christ, not because we've had a good week, not because we've, we've, failed, we, we, we've, we've not failed, not because we've kept up obedience, but because Jesus is perfect and at your right hand. Father God, our frame of heart, our sins, our bad deeds can never damage our righteousness before you because our righteousness is Jesus himself. Would you, would you burn that on our hearts, Lord God? Would you give us the confidence that comes from that so that we might persevere and so that we might do many good works to glorify you and your son? We thank you for the word that you've spoken through, Paul. We thank you for the reformation and the truths uncovered and rediscovered therein. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the grace of your spirit that works in our midst. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus, our conquering king and our slaughtered lamb. And everybody said, amen.